Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the library that breathes hope from the fifth chapter of Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. My wife cannot stand to go to the grocery store with me. You may have been expecting some deeper theological truth to begin this exploration of the Beatitudes, but there it is. It's not deep or theological, but it's true. Very early in our relationship, it became apparent to my wife that we were not compatible as grocery shoppers. So she officially uninvited me from her trips to the grocery store and encouraged me to make trips to the store by myself. You see, I am a comparison grocery shopper, and my wife is not. I can spend 20 minutes in the milk aisle looking at labels while using the internet on my phone to determine which plant-based milk substitute is best. I want to compare the calories and the carbohydrates and the cost. I want to know which nut, when milked, has the least environmental impact. Now, while I might stand there working out these existential problems with my phone in one hand and a carton of macadamia nut milk in the other, my wife, God bless her, makes it through the entire store gathering all the food that our family needs to survive for another week. We just don't grocery shop the same way. I want to compare grocery items to see how they stack up against one another. My wife does not. She has decided that such comparison is a waste of time and energy. And before you waste any energy choosing sides and deciding which one of us is right, which one of us is the better grocery shopper, let me save you the trouble, my wife is right. I know that because she told me. Now, even though my wife is right, we can probably all agree that much of our lives are governed by comparison. We may not all devote energy to comparing milk substitutes, but we all comparison shop every day. It's one of the ways by which we divide and order our world. It's how we make sense of things. Comparison is even one of the ways we engage and interpret the biblical texts. For example, when we hear or read the opening verses of the fifth chapter of Matthew's gospel, we probably have plenty of ideas to compare. These verses are known as the Beatitudes, and they are, quite simply, some of the most famous words ever attributed to Jesus. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We may not know these words as the Beatitudes. We might not even know that they are attributed to Jesus. But my guess is that most of us have been exposed to these words in some form or fashion. We've heard or read or sung these verses. These Beatitudes are ubiquitous. They're everywhere, which in and of itself is kind of strange because the content of these verses is not normal. These Beatitudes are full of things we don't usually like to talk about. The word Beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus, and it is defined as supreme blessedness. But the people in these Beatitude verses do not seem to match that definition. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the persecuted, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, this is a comparatively strange list. These are not the type of folks I think of when I think of supreme blessedness. Other biblical texts like Proverbs or the Psalms offer statements like, Blessed is the one who's kind to the needy, and blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, which is a far cry from blessed are the persecuted. These beatitudes from Jesus seem to be swimming in comparatively deeper waters. They seem to be a collection of circumstances that are not normal, conditions that are not conventional, realities that are beyond convention or post-conventional. These are the spaces where our normal ways of being and coping no longer work. I can't speak for you, but I can relate to that. I can absolutely identify with finding myself in spaces where conventional wisdom is of no use. In circumstances where my normal ways of being and coping are swallowed whole. To be honest, I can relate to that right now. I could really use some post-conventional wisdom about how the horrible realities and strange circumstances I see and experience in my life have anything to do with supreme blessedness. But perhaps that's what these Beatitudes offer. Maybe that's just what this ubiquitous, post-conventional poem can provide. If so, then our comparison shopping has already begun. We've already established that these Beatitudes are different because they talk about the stuff we don't usually like to talk about. They appear to name the thing. These verses are different because they bring to the surface the kinds of things I would prefer to pretend do not exist. This is not a list of who's who. This is a list of who's not. The poor in spirit, those dedicated to pursuing love no matter the cost, those who mourn, the meek, the persecuted, the reviled, those who absorb violence and offense while remaining committed to mercy and peace, those longing for righteousness and justice. These beatitudes are unrelenting. Every verse names the pain. 
And maybe that's where post-conventional wisdom begins, in naming it. Maybe there's something to naming the thing, to seeing it, to facing it, validating it. Clearly, these Beatitudes are not afraid to talk about it, no matter what it is. These verses make no effort to deny anything. They name the pain, they acknowledge the discomfort, they validate the suffering. And I'm not sure I always do that. Compared to these Beatitudes, I'm much better at things like denying and disassociating than I am at acknowledging and validating. I would rather devote my time and energy to sidestepping, to avoiding or numbing the post-conventional realities within and around me. I'd rather spin it than name it. I'd rather throw a lot of words at it in order to soften it, to make it seem better than it is. But these Beatitudes don't do that either. In fact, these verses don't throw a lot of words at anything. This post-conventional poem is comparatively brief. In the 10 verses known as the Beatitudes, there are at least 10 undesirable conditions and circumstances named. You know what those 10 groups of burdened folks get for their troubles? 141 words in the NIV English translation. Divide those 10 groups of people into the 141 words, and they each receive an average of 14 words. 13 words for the poor in spirit. 10 words for those who mourn. 16 words for the persecuted. There just aren't a lot of words here, which seems strange given the weight of the subject matter. Or maybe that's not so strange. Maybe that's a clue. I mean, when you've been in a circumstance or condition like the ones named in the Beatitudes, did you find yourself longing for words? Were more words what you needed? Think of the last time you were poor in spirit, the last time you were depressed. You may be there right now. Imagine trying to convey all that's going on inside. How would you honor the uncertainty and apathy and lifelessness and exhaustion? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thirteen words in the English translation. Or how about the last time you felt persecuted, reviled, or falsely accused? If I asked you, would you be able to convey all that you experienced in two sentences? Because that's what Jesus does. Maybe the truth is that sometimes we find ourselves in spaces that are beyond words. Maybe when our lives move beyond convention, more words don't necessarily help. Maybe I don't always need to fill up the space with words in an effort to diminish the discomfort or explain it away. Thirteen words for the poor in spirit. Two short sentences for those under attack, persecution, 
and false accusations. The brevity of these beatitudes seems to indicate that after I name the pain, I need to honor it. I need to give the longing, the heartbreak, and the exhaustion the space that it deserves. That's what these beatitudes do. These verses name the thing, and then they honor it by giving it space, by recognizing language has limitations. More words aren't always what's needed. Sometimes we dwell in post-conventional spaces that are beyond words. Name it. And then be still. Be quiet. Be present. Honor it. You know, as I allow my spirit to still and my mind to quiet into the honoring space created by these beatitudes, I'm actually able to notice the absence of something else. Comparison. This post-conventional poem employs no comparison. The conditions that are named and the circumstances that are honored are not compared to anything, not even to each other. Each simple verse names a pain. Each sentence honors a post-conventional reality, and not one word is given to comparing. The poor in spirit are not compared to the mourning. There are no degrees of meekness or persecution offered, no qualifications for the pure in heart, no requirements for peacemakers are provided. In the same way that these direct and simple verses invite me to face the parts of my life that are beyond convention and honor them in spaces that exist beyond words, they also declare that such realities are beyond comparison. Not every experience can be divided and organized. There are parts of this life that can't be rationalized and explained. Determining the cause or assigning blame can't always make it better. Sometimes we can't categorize or choose our way out. Which doesn't mean I don't try. In fact, I try a lot. If I can compare my pain to your pain, I can diminish it. I can convince myself that pain exists on a scale and that one of us is suffering more than the other, thereby diminishing my pain or yours. If I can contrast my grief to your grief, I can deny it. I can convince myself that grief can be categorized and that one of us is truly experiencing grief while the other is not so much, thereby denying my grief or yours. If I can hold the persecution of someone I love up next to the persecution of my enemy, I can disassociate from it. I can convince myself that persecution can be qualified and even justified. That's not what these Beatitudes do. These verses do not comparison shop. None of the circumstances are held higher than the other. 
No condition is described as more of a burden. No emotional state is treated as though it is more holy. No disruption is ridiculed as less than. There is no diminishing, no explaining, and no blaming. These beatitudes stand in opposition to my ability to spin. These verses upend the alternative worlds I so dedicate myself to creating in an attempt to avoid facing realities that exist beyond convention, beyond words, and beyond comparison. They declare that when we're in such spaces, we just are. Name it, honor it, and let it be. Perhaps that is the broken-hearted pulse these beatitudes resuscitate. In my own broken heart, I know that. I feel it. I know that love and peace and mercy can't be measured. I recognize there are no true metrics for grief or loss or trauma. I know that naming and honoring the suffering of one does not invalidate the suffering of the other. There are parts of life, parts of existence, which simply cannot be compared to anything else. They just are. Name them, honor them, and let them be. Therein lies the only real promise of hope. Don't miss that beatitude truth. The named circumstances, those that are honored with space, the realities that are allowed to exist beyond comparison, are all promised the hope of change. The poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn will be comforted. The meek, the persecuted, the reviled will inherit the earth and receive the kingdom of heaven. Those longing for righteousness and justice will get it. The merciful will receive mercy. The pure in heart will see God. The peacemakers will be called children of God. Anyone who finds themselves described in these beatitudes is assured that there is more to their current state of mind or heart or spirit than they can presently behold. Each named and honored circumstance carries the hope of transformation. Every post-conventional reality bears the promise that a change is going to come. The pain will not endure. The suffering will not be wasted. This present darkness can yield to light. This death can birth new life. That kind of hope is post-conventional. It's resurrectional, and it's hard-earned. It's the kind of hope that only comes when we name our crosses, honor our death, and let our tombs be tombs. 
There's no shortcut to this kind of hope. It comes from being present to the pain, from letting suffering do the work that it has to do. And that's really hard. But here's the good news of these Beatitudes. We are blessed. Blessed is the very word that this poem begins with. Blessedness pulses throughout these Beatitudes as a repetitive mantra proclaiming who we truly are. These Beatitudes are not aspirational statements. These are verses of solidarity. They're not saying we're blessed because we are poor in spirit. They're saying we are blessed even when we are poor in spirit. They're declaring that while the heartbreak of our circumstances may place us beyond convention, beyond words, and beyond comparative spaces, we never get beyond our identity as blessed. We never get beyond God. There's nowhere we can go, no reality of pain and suffering into which we wander or are led that places us outside the love and acceptance and blessing of the God who is in and with us. If you are poor in spirit, grieving or depressed, you are not alone. If you are persecuted or oppressed, you are not forsaken. If you are absorbing violence or offense, you're not somewhere that God is not. You are blessed. And not just from on high. We're not just blessed by a disembodied sky God that sits on a cloud looking at us lovingly from afar and sending us positive thoughts. Our blessed identity is declared by the dirt and sweat and tears and blood of one who embodied, lived, and died every beatitude. One who has been poor in spirit. One who has been meek. One who experientially knows grief and persecution. One who absorbed violence in the name of peace and persecution in the name of mercy. One who knows you, loves you, holds you. The same one to whom this post-conventional poem belongs one who is with you, who is within you, saying, remember who you are, who you have always been. You are blessed. What could possibly compare to that? 